Welcome to Sierra Week Conversations, a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy, economics, and a changing world in the COVID-19 era. I'm your host, Dan Jurgen. Hello, everybody. This is Atul Arya from IHS Market. And today uh, I'm, uh, I have a great pleasure to be talking with Dr. Sunita Narayan, who is the Director General for Science Center for Science and Environment based in New Delhi in India. Welcome to Sarah uh, Conversation. Thank you. Uh, uh, in today's conversation, we are going to cover a number of different topics, the pandemic in, uh, in India, uh, the, the environmental priorities, the impact of climate change and energy policies. Uh, so pretty interesting agenda. So first of all, uh, Sunita, could you say a little bit about the Center for Science and Environment for our audience? Um, I thought CSC, Center for Science and Environment, is a nonprofit based in Delhi. We call ourselves a public interest research organization because that's what we are. Uh, we do research on environmental issues and we do them in the public interest. And uh, based in Delhi, based in India, working in the global south, our interests really are at the interface between environment and development. And so CSC has always sort of played a role in trying to get people in India across the world to understand um, how development and particularly the issue of the livelihood of the very poor in our part of the world is dependent on a sustainable environment and how we actually need to build and improve the environment so that you can build livelihoods of the poor. And of course, increasingly, we've uh, as as India has has grown, and as many countries of the south are today facing a problem of growth and pollution, CSE's main role has been to talk about to research both the causes of the pollution, but also to suggest what is the roadmap ahead. And that's really where we are. We're a research organization, but uh, we are someone who actually pushes policy as well. So we're not a traditional think tank. And your scope of your activities goes uh, beyond India or you just focus uh, in India itself? No, it goes beyond India. We're working a lot in um, Africa and South Asia. I mean, essentially, this, and, and we do work globally as well when we look at climate change. I mean, CSC many years ago had come up with a report called Global Warming in an Unequal World case of environmental colonialism, which was 1991, so ages ago, Atul. But our whole effort at that time was to really talk about the development imperative of developing countries, talk about the need for equity and justice in the climate negotiations. So we work globally as well, but our area of actual work where we are working on ground, working with uh, institutions and working with governments is India, South Asia, and Africa, many African countries. Okay. We'll come back to climate change. I should say that your report, uh, you just mentioned, uh, I just happened to see it a couple of days back because the focus has uh, come back on environmental and climate justice. And, and the report had you know, some interesting things to say about that. But let's start with, let's start with a, a more... Uh, topic which is uh, very much on the top of everybody's mind today, which is uh, the pandemic, COVID-19. So how are things things in India? I think India now has the third highest number of cases and still growing. Give us, give us the assessment uh, today, uh, early July. So 
India is in, um, I mean, it's tough in India. Let's not make any, um, let's not make light of that. The fact is the government of India took a very um, important decision uh, mid-March uh, mid to do a lockdown. And I believe that was the right decision. I mean, uh, it has major impact on livelihoods of people, but it was the only thing that the government could do because we know in India we have to fight the pandemic uh, uh, without it getting to our hospitals. We do not have that kind of bandwidth. And, you know, the images that we could see from New York, the images that we saw from UK, from uh, from Italy, I mean, showed us how the developed world with all its resources was completely failing to deal with this. And so I think the government very wisely took the decision for a lockdown. It has not been easy. I think um, the fact is that we had a major impact on the livelihoods of very poor people. And the lesson that we have learned out of COVID has been that the poor in our world are hit doubly. I mean, they are the most vulnerable when it comes to the disease because they live in congested areas. I mean, the fact is most of our cities today and where the uh, COVID-19 has actually continued to grow has been in many areas where there is massive congestion. Now, how do you talk about social distancing when people do not even have a place to live? There are 50, 100, 200 people living cheek to jowl and, you know, without access. And so poverty, and, and this has been the case across Atul, it's not just India. I mean, if you look at across the world today, you're finding that the virus is disproportionately hit the poorest, um, the, the people who were the most marginalized, the migrants, whether it's in Singapore and other countries. I mean, you're seeing today that the real face of, uh, of poverty is coming uh, home to us because we are understanding that's where the disease is, will grow. And of course, the government is trying. The migrants went back. The, the workers went back home. That has meant that the virus has now gone into many other parts where it would not have gone. I think there is a huge effort that governments are trying to make to test, to contain, to try and uh, reduce the burden of the disease. Uh, the only small good news that we have is that the death rate in India, the mortality rate, I mean, given our very vulnerable population and given the, the comorbidities that we have, is strangely and, 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 and happily uh, low. And I think that's the only saving grace that we have today. But yes, the disease is there. Uh, efforts are being made. Uh, the lockdown continues in many parts of India. But that then is putting a huge strain on the economic growth. And please, I mean, and for most of us, I'm, I'm not hit beyond a point. I mean, I can't go to work, but we are working offline. Uh, CSE continues to work. Most of us have adjusted to the new normal. We are not the victims of uh, COVID-19. It's really the poor, the informal workers, you know, the people who've lost their jobs and livelihoods. And so, uh, you know, every time I think of the impact, I keep that face in front of me. Yes, that's, that's what so we true. want to do. So what do you see as the, in India, uh, path ahead on the, because the disease is still there. I mean, there's still no cure uh, or, or no vaccination. So what's going to, what's the outlook in India? I mean, uh, my understanding today is that government is working very hard to control two things. One, to control mortality. 
And I think that's a good strategy to target the most vulnerable and to make sure that people don't die. Because at the end of the day, um, even if you have a high caseload, um, if people are recovering, um, it's not as bad as saying people have died. And I think that one thing is what our government very rightly is focusing on. And I think we need to do more on that. We need to make sure that the aged, the more vulnerable, the people with comorbidities, the government guidelines on it are clear, but I think that's where the focus has to be so that we can control the number of people dying. And I think that's the tragedy in society. The other thing I can see government, and I think all states are trying to do, is to balance between livelihoods and disease. Mm -hmm. And I think right now it's tough because, frankly, uh, in spite of the fact that the economy has been opened up, uh, consumer confidence is not up because uh, people are not willing to take a risk. And so controlling the disease is going to be important for people to actually go out, people to go um, to cafes, to restaurants, to shops, to, you know, to get the economy going again. So I think the government realizes it. And I mean, there are all indicate everybody. I mean, I'm not even going to give you a wild guess or a prediction. Atul. We have learned now to say, um, let's follow the norms. Let's stay safe. And the only thing that we are, and I think government is today also, they've made an announcement. I think all our effort is to, um, um, to ask government uh, to make sure that the benefits go to, that there is social security support for the poorest in India, uh, for the farmers in India. I mm. think that has to be the focus right now. Yeah, and that challenge of balancing the health versus economy, you know, it's a global challenge, not just in, in India, it's uh, here in the U.S. as well. Let me switch gears a little bit and... and uh, Talk a bit more broadly. I mean, you recently wrote, I think it was just last month, that there are multiple crises unfolding globally. So, could you talk about what you see as those multiple crises and how is the global leadership addressing those? You know, Atul, it almost feels as if we have lost so much time. I mean, we had such good days when we could have actually made good and done something. I mean, climate change is a crisis which is unfolding in front of our eyes. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, we had a cyclone hitting um, the east of India, okay? Um, very, it was a super cyclone. It thankfully didn't become a super cyclone, but it was bad, it was bad, okay? And that cyclone hit a very congested, very, very populated, poor part of India. and. We have to remember that every time these cyclones hit, they are not about the event, they are about the aftermath. Because the point is that the cyclone hits and today, and the good news is, and I think this is something that we have to recognize, Indian scientists working with scientists from across, but Indian med scientists have done a phenomenal job in being able to track and predict the pathway of the cyclones. So we are much better prepared. People don't die when a cyclone hits, mm -hmm. but that's the least, I mean, that's one good thing. The fact is it takes away property, destroys homes, destroys the development dividend. I mean, years of investment of government to build a school, to provide uh, uh, care for people, build their homes, do something, all wiped out. Okay, and that hit the East. 
We had in the following week, we had a cyclone brewing on the west of India, hitting Mumbai. And it didn't hit Mumbai as bad, but it hit the surrounding areas of Konkan and devastated people's livelihoods. After that, and right at that time, we had locust attacks happening, uh, hitting uh, Rajasthan and even coming into many other parts of India. And all that, if you look at it, Atul, there is enough evidence today to, to, to say with certainty, and I'm saying this very carefully, and I'm saying this with great responsibility, that it's incontrovertible that this is linked to climate change. Climate change is about intensification of uh, rainfall events. It is about uh, intensification of extreme rain as well as of the frequency and intensity of cyclones. If you look at locusts, what has happened is that you had cyclone events in the Arabian Peninsula in 2018. Something that we all didn't notice. Weird events created a breeding ground for a desert creature which grows exponentially if the, if the conditions are ideal for it. Then you had three more cyclones hitting the uh, eastern part of Africa, the Horn of Africa. Um, you've had extended monsoons in India. And so as a result of it, you've had this, the locust which would have bred and died has become a plague-like situation. So this crisis is unfolding in front of us. And we have, of course, the COVID-19 crisis unfolding in front of us. We have the issue of poverty. We have the issue of healthcare. We have the issue of education. So in my view, we have wasted too much time. My generation has wasted too much time. And we are today have to catch up doubly, triply fast because nature is today at its, nature is showing that there is a revenge of nature. And we need to make sure that we can now hear and do things fast. So what do you see as some of the possible solutions? And how do we move forward, both in India and more broadly? So, Atul, you know, I'm an, I mean, it's, I, and please forgive me for this. I know I live in India and it's impossible to be an optimist, but I'm an optimist, okay? I'm always looking at where there is an opportunity. And I look at COVID-19 and I see an extraordinary op opportunity opening up in the world. The fact is COVID-19 has created a disruption at the scale that we have never seen before. For all of us, we are shaken. I mean, climate change is something that we talk in the future. But today, would you have thought that you would be sitting in your house doing this conversation with me? Life is turned upside down. Complete change in our, in, in our economies, collapse of our economies. We, we are beginning to fight over who should get essential supplies. I mean, where is the world? What has happened to the world? I mean, yeah. this scale of disruption. Now, this is the opportunity. Let me give you the what's happening in India. And I see that as an opportunity for the whole world. I mean, so we have this massive exodus of people leaving our cities to go back home. Till now, the exodus has been reversed. We've always had people leaving villages to come into cities. There's been a massive movement of people from our villages, small towns to bigger towns. And of course, you know that 
uh, the immigrant uh, issue all over the world, including the U.S., has been top headline issue. The same migrant workers are wanting desperately to go home today. Okay, now you have created, therefore, there is a possibility here of doing two things. One. There is a possibility here to invest in where the people came from and why they had to leave. So there's a possibility in reinvesting in, in our case, rural India, Mm -hmm. rebuilding the lives of people so that they have electricity, they have water, they have education, they have healthcare, and they have local economy that works. I mean, why can't India build local economy so that it builds a resilient economy where people live. We have the rural employment program. Government is already talking about using the employment program to build assets, ecological assets, build tanks, farms, dig wells, create uh, livelihoods, create local economy so that people get jobs where they live. And that's a massive renewal package, a localization package that we could come up with for the future. The other part of it is the workers have left. Now, what do you do about the urban industrial economy of both America, India, and everywhere else? Now, this is where there is a massive opportunity. I mean, the fact of the matter is that we have a globalization model which discounts the cost of labor and discounts the cost of environment. I mean, the reason why trade and industry has moved out of the West and moved into our homes has been because it has always been cheaper to produce because you don't have to pay the same labor cost. You don't have to pay the same environmental cost. Now, when India is today talking about labor coming back and already it's happening Atul and it's very exciting because I'm seeing now uh, employers talking now saying no they want the workers back and they're saying we'll give you better wages we will give you housing we will give you better facilities so you're creating conditions for improvement in the well-being of people who work in your cities in your industries now this means that your cost of production will go up Now, this is where the big opportunity is. Instead of us balking at it and saying, oh, we are not going to pay this extra cost of environmental security or safeguards or labor, can we actually think, no, we'll pay the cost. We'll pay the farmers. We will pay the extra cost it takes to to make these products. But we want not a consumer-led economy, but a well-being-led economy. So I think I, I don't know if the world is going to think like this, Atul, but it's our job to raise this. And I think here is an opportunity. We could rethink uh, a post-COVID world, which is much more equal, much more uh, much more based on the well-being of people and one that does not discount uh, the environment. Yeah, it is, it is interesting that, as you say, we are seeing similar moves all over the world. You know, people are leaving big cities, big metropolitan areas, even here in the U.S. and moving to smaller cities or in, in, the, in, the, in the heartland of, of the U.S. And same thing for this is for very similar reasons, as you say. Uh, I want to uh, ask you about uh, something you just recently presented, the environmental agenda for the future. 
So could you talk a little bit about what that agenda looks like, a few important blanks from that? So that is linked to the work. I mean, that is linked to the fact that air pollution is one of our most deadly uh, problems. And yeah. uh, one of the benefits of lockdown has been that we have seen blue skies. Okay. We have amazing blue skies. I mean, it is glorious, Atul. I cannot tell you how beautiful it is. You can hear birds, which you could only hear horns. I mean, I you could hear the sound of birds. I mean, uh, you could smell the air. I mean, it, it's phenomenal. I think for most of us who live in Delhi and around, and in fact, all cities of India, because our data is showing that all cities of India, the air quality has improved dramatically uh, during the lockdown. By the way, so, is that still there or is it going um, back? It's still know? there because we have the monsoons. This is always okay. a good time. <laughs> so <laughs> this is nature right now. Yes, okay. Now the bad news will begin. But what it told us, Atul, was that two things came out during the lockdown. I mean, you know, uh, pollution science is always a very confounding science. And everybody who has a vested interest in pollution always tries to make it more confounding and more confusing. What the lockdown did was to clarify all that. And what it basically did was to tell people that the sources of pollution are twofold. One, uh, vehicles, because the lockdown meant there was no vehicles on the road. So vehicles are a major source of pollution. The second is that burning dirty fuel uh, for combustion is the second source of pollution. So industrial pollution... Uh, generators, uh, because we didn't have electricity. So, you know, those are the industrial pollution because industry was the other thing shut down. So that became clear. So based on it, what we have presented is an agenda for post-lockdown. We are saying we need to secure the right to clean air. And I'll just quickly tell you, we have five points in the agenda. The first is uh, when it comes to vehicles, we have said that the most important source of pollution is trucks and large heavy-duty vehicles. In Delhi, to give you the data, during the lockdown, the number of vehicles went down from 4,000 a day less to, to less than 400 a day. So that dramatic decrease is what led to the reduction in pollution. So we have suggested to government that this is a great win-win opportunity where if you scrap the old vehicles, the, the dirty vehicles, and you replace them with BS6 vehicles, because we have now got Euro 6 equivalent BS6 fuel and emission fuel, um, emission technology. And this is 90% better than BS4 as far as heavy-duty vehicles are concerned, mm -hmm. diesel heavy-duty vehicles are concerned. So we are saying that it could be a win-win because it would be a financial stimulus for industry as well. It would be a good way to clean up the fleet and transform the fleet. And you could do this very quickly and you could actually improve um, the air quality. That's one. Our second one is uh, also vehicle related. We are talking about massive investment in public transport. The irony is the virus is actually making public transport less, um, less people don't, are less safe. But we are looking at the best uh, lessons from all over the world. And we're saying public transport, bicycle lanes, get people off cars. And uh, we have battery, two-wheelers, three-wheelers that we could promote uh, so that you could actually do mobility differently. 
The third thing that we have suggested is that as industrial emissions are the major source for pollution, we are basically demanding um, a change in the fuel. And we are saying that we need a transformation so that we stop using coal and we move to gas. So we are suggesting natural gas because we see natural gas as an interim, but a very powerful, quick solution, which can clean up the quality of air. We have written to uh, the finance minister and taken this matter up. There's a 40% tax on natural gas right now. So if that tax is removed, you actually make gas roughly competitive with coal. Not quite, but then because of the fact that industry has much cleaner environment and you don't have to shut it down, the regulatory pressures come down. Industry is saying with a 40% reduction, they're prepared to move lock, stock and barrel to gas. So we, we are pushing that. And the last thing that we are saying is that thermal power plants, which are largely coal driven, we have already uh, gone to the Supreme Court on this matter. We had already got emission standards set for coal-based power plants, which are now uh, pretty good. And we are saying uh, that those standards must be implemented. Industry is fighting us very hard on it. They, um, In fact, our latest report is showing us that the public sector uh, thermal power plants, which is NTPC, has done an amazing job. And they have ordered the FGDs and they are coming in and they will meet the emission norms by uh, 2021, which is already a six-year delay. But the private sector emission uh, thermal power plants are like hardly on it and they will not meet the emission norms. So that's a big challenge for us to be able to push it. So we've got some new ideas. We are looking at how we can incentivize push that. Yes. Just for my our audience, NTPC is the National oh. Thermal Power Corporation, which is the largest uh, generator of power in, in, in India. Coal-based power, that's coal right. Power. Power. So, so just one more question on coal, Sunita, because you know, you're very well known for closing, first of all, the coal plants are within the Delhi metropolitan area and then, then beyond. But coal is such an important part of the livelihood of people in India, you know, from mining to railways to... I mean, how do you think that dislocation will have to be addressed when, you know, if you stop producing coal? Tough question, Atul. Very tough question. I see um, the pollution challenge as the only challenge to coal. I mean, uh, as you've seen right now as well, government has reinvested in uh, coal as a strategy. Uh, they have talked about privatizing and commercializing the coal. That you know, to me, that's only a fight between uh, the publicly held uh, government monopoly, uh, the Coal India Limited, which had 100% or 90% coal as against private. So I'm, I'm not bothered about that fight beyond the point. But I think the fact is India is very, very dependent on coal-based power for its energy needs. Now, as, as CSE, as an environmentalist, we have actually, and I have to say this, confess this to you, we have never supported the global movement of a ban on coal. Okay, uh, The reasons are twofold. One, we believe in the issue of equity and the issue of justice, climate justice. And we definitely believe that there is a right to development that the countries like India have, and that needs to be secured. Two, we have always argued that we need to find a way to outprice coal 
And we can only do that by getting more and more understanding of the pollution issues because coal for us is an energy security issue, but it's also a very deadly source of local pollution. And uh, whether it's the tribal communities who are saying no to mining, whether it is uh, people living near coal-based power plants who are saying no to pollution, or whether it is people in uh, cities who are saying no to air pollution because of the use of coal in industry. I think that's the lobby or that's the, you know, that's really the power which I think will change the coal story in India. But the alternative has to be equally available. I mean, when CSC had um, advocated compressed natural gas for vehicles in, in 2000, the competing fuel for us was diesel. And therefore, bringing gas as to replace diesel or to displace diesel was still relatively easier because the price of diesel was relatively high. And we had come up with a policy which the Supreme Court endorsed, which is that clean fuel should always remain lower than dirty fuel. So at all time, whatever taxation happened, the government agreed that they would keep the price of compressed natural gas lower than diesel. But in this case, we are displacing coal. And coal is getting imported from Australia, Indonesia, from South Africa at dirt cheap prices. I mean, it's uh, to, I can only say it in rupees and maybe you can translate it. It's eight rupees a kg, whereas gas is 43 rupees a kg. So the, the difference just makes it uncompetitive. And, you know, industry basically says, are you trying to out are you trying to throw us out of business? And that's clearly not going to work. Yeah. So getting the, you know, in, in the U.S., we have an interesting history now. Last 10 years, as you know well, that cheaper natural gas has replaced coal. So as you say, it has to be an economic solution. And removing this uh, tax you mentioned, the 40 percent, would be a very important uh, first step. So that, that's uh, that's very good. Just one uh, quick question around green stimulus. Do you see, you know, there's a lot of talk about green stimulus in, in uh, programs around the world. Anything like that likely in India for a cleaner recovery? Not yet. Mm-hmm. But you have to see the government stimulus as also a green stimulus. I do. Uh-huh. Because government has invested in the livelihoods of very poor people and it has put in some money into agriculture, into farmers' hands. I see that as a green stimulus. So, you know, at the end of the day, protecting livelihoods of poor. Yeah. So I will, uh, in the, in the closing, I want to ask a couple of uh, slightly different questions. One is that, um, you know, Sunita, you are, uh, and we have known each other for a while now. You're very well known, uh, for uh, being a very straight talker. Uh, how did this come about? Tell us a little story about you becoming, were you like this in school as well? Cause trouble? Yeah. Well, I think I've been very fortunate. I've had amazing teachers and I've had amazing people who have been my role models and they have always taught me that, uh, you know, just speak truth to power and that power listens and respects uh, facts. And I mean, uh, we, we are straight talkers, but you have to recognize that uh, it comes at two costs. One, we have to be very, very careful on our facts. We know that if we err even this much, even this much, we are in trouble. We are finished. So we have to make sure that our facts are right. And secondly, we can talk state because at some level, 
we have public credibility. I mean, and then maintaining public credibility means that we also don't take money from the corporate sector. We try and make sure that our funding is public uh, funding. So we don't do consultancy. So, you know, it does come at a cost of that. So I think um, it's not tough. I mean, I think we'd all love to be straight talkers in this world. <laughs> Well, having uh, having uh, seen your work, I can say that uh, the Center for Science and Environment has made a huge impact on the livelihood of millions of people in, in India. Just the fact that cleaner air in Delhi, you know, even not as clean as we would like it to be, has such a huge health benefit. So, so in closing, uh, what will what makes you optimistic looking forward, given all these multiple crises? Just the, I have huge faith in human beings. I think I, I keep thinking, I mean, I just think that I don't think, I mean, you think about it today, Atul, what a crisis of global leadership we have. Yeah. What a collapse of global institutions we have. For people like us, I mean, I keep thinking, I, 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 I in fact wrote this recently saying, look at the crises that are hitting us today. Climate change, air pollution, locus, covid all tell us the national boundaries mean nothing. It's about an interconnected, interdependent world. That's what these crises are about. And yet today, more than ever, we need global institutions. But I think that's where I give get my sense of courage. We, we all get our sense of courage. I mean, you have the same. We, we are all in it together. We all feel that there is a certain amount of that human beings are good people and that we will step up to the game. We're not going to allow this to get out of hand. So I think that's really where we all get our optimism, our deep sense of faith and trust in, in, in our fellow human beings. Thank you. Thank you, Sunita. Thank you for joining us uh, for this uh, Sarah conversation presented to you by IHS Marty. And thank you, everybody for joining us for this conversation. Thanks again for tuning in to another Sierra Week conversation presented by IHS Market. For the complete video series and previous episodes, visit us online at sierraweek.com. <laughs>